This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and this is Gigi Well Played, the show that talks about all things video games. This week, we're going to be talking about the Mortal Kombat franchise following the release of the latest silver screen adaptation recently. But before that, here's a recap of some of the biggest news in the world of gaming with Ali Johan and Ofnil Ting. Thank you, Hanif. Let's start with the Resident Evil showcase that took place at the end of last week, commemorating the franchise's 25th anniversary. Uh, the focus is, of course, the upcoming Resident Evil Village, which is scheduled to be released next month. Stop shouting. You'll draw the monsters. Tell me what is going on around here. It doesn't make any sense. Mother Miranda has always protected us. You escaped my little brother's idiot games, did you? Apart from the new trailer, Capcom also announced that multiple demos will be released for the game for PS4 and PS5, featuring two levels, the village and the castle. Uh, the window for you to check out the demo is still pretty specific, limited and kind of confusing actually, so we suggest that you check out the schedule online for more information. Mm-hmm. On top of that, they also announced that Mercenaries Mood is making a comeback to the franchise after its last appearance in Resident Evil 6. Hi everyone, I'm director Morimasa Sato. I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you all about the much-requested extra game mode included in Resident Evil Village, The Mercenaries. For those of you hearing about it for the first time, it's a beloved extra mode featured in various games in the franchise. It's best known for high-speed arcade-style action, where you have to reach the goal within a certain time limit. Of course, we've also added some new touches to it. The trailer showcases new features, perks and abilities including power bonuses and the ability to purchase new weapons between waves of enemies. Uh, But that's not all. Capcom also announced that the franchise will be getting a crossover with another survival horror franchise, Dead by Daylight. Though the announcement came in the form of a brief teaser with more scheduled to be revealed during Dead by Daylight's livestream that's happening on the 25th of May. So for fans that are waiting for the announcement of the Resident Evil 4 remake, unfortunately there's nothing on that front. Uh, Though Capcom did announce something related to that beloved classic installment in the series uh, Resident Evil 4 VR. So in this one, Capcom is partnering with Oculus Studios and Armature Studio to bring uh, Resident Evil 4 to Facebook's Oculus Quest 2. And as of now, we're not sure whether the game will be exclusive to that platform, but being a VR game means that the game will change its perspectives from third person to first person, much like the Resident Evil 7 uh, VR, with motion controls for interacting objects, you can use firearms, and also slicing away at enemies with your combat knife. Uh, Lastly, they also provide new information on Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, the animated movie for Netflix. Leon? Claire? Could you take a look at something? A little boy drew them. I can't get anyone to go on record. Doesn't that look a lot like Raccoon City? I gotta go. Don't do anything stupid. Hey, Leon. That outfit doesn't suit you. Yep, these are the voices of Leon S. Kennedy and Claire Redfield, protagonists from the series. 
They've revealed a bit about the plot. The movie takes place two years after the events of Resident Evil 4, and apart from our two heroes, it'll also feature President Graham, the father to Ashley, whom Leon was sent on a special mission to rescue in Resident Evil 4. The movie is scheduled to be released this July, so be on the lookout for that. Next news item for PS5 owners out there, the five of you. Uh, here is a news that will improve your new next-gen console. Sony has finally released the first major update for their console and uh, there are some updates including the ability to now transfer your PS5 games from your internal storage to USB extended storage. It's a good way to save space for your internal SSD but unfortunately, you cannot play PS5 games off the external storage and this is due to the way the games are coded to take advantage of Sony's internal SSD. So Sony said that transferring the games from your extended storage to the internal storage will be simple and fast. Love it when uh, manufacturers give us options. That's right. Other than that, crossplay is also intergenerational now, meaning that you can share play PS5 games with your buddies on PS4 and play co-op games together. You can also request to join your friend's game session when you see them playing games that allow this feature, allowing for a faster way to start playing together. Other updates include improvements on the game base, the ability to disable game chat and adjust player's volume, pre-download game updates, customize your game library and a new trophy setting and stats screen. Cool. And uh, staying with Sony, one of its games that's heading to PC, Days Gone, now has a release date. The game will be released on the 18th of May and you can pre-order the game now on Steam and on Epic Games Store. On Steam, the game is priced at 209 ringgit. Of course, the game will come with a myriad of improvements, including ultra-wide support for up to 21 by 9 unlock frame rate, the use of first and third party controllers as well as mouse and keyboard. Uh, also, multiple graphical improvements uh, including increased level of detail, foliage draw distances and graphical customizations. Days Gone is a cult favourite among fans and news relating to its sequel was reported recently. Sony apparently cancelled the project. Uh, for PlayStation owners out there who haven't played the game yet but have a PS Plus subscription, the game is now available for free for this month of April. So go ahead and claim it. Lastly, moving on to Sony's competitor, Microsoft. Xbox Singapore on Facebook has recently changed its name to Xbox C, that's Southeast Asian, and has changed its description to cover the entire Southeast Asian region and not just one country. On top of that, the fan preview post for The Age of Empires that's on the page has also been translated into regional languages including Baza Malaysia and Vietnamese. Nice. Now, uh, they haven't officially made any formal announcement regarding this yet, but this could mean that we'll soon see official support for Xbox and its products, especially Xbox Game Pass outside of Singapore. Yeah, Xbox has officially been in Singapore for years now, but they have yet to show any intention or inclination of expanding beyond uh, the country. So is this a step for them to finally change that? We will have to see. Right now, Malaysian gamers who like to play on Microsoft's console would have to create a Singaporean or an American account. So if this is indeed true, we can finally create a local account. Uh, but you know, not sure whether the consoles would be officially be coming to Malaysia as according to word on the street, Microsoft might actually want to push their subscription service, the Xbox Game Pass for PCs here rather than the consoles themselves. Regardless, nothing has been officially announced yet for now as of the time of this recording, so take it with a pinch of salt, but we'll bring you any updates as and when they come as usual. Well, that's all we have for this week's recap. Back to you, Hanif. Thank you very much, Ali and Afnil. 
With the release of the latest Mortal Kombat movie, we feel like it's apt for us to talk about the franchise that has been around since the 90s and has taken many shapes and forms. From existing as an arcade game that was pretty controversial and industry-shaking to having successful spin-offs and adaptations on TV and the silver screen, not to mention a long staying power that has seen 22 video game iterations of the franchise, Mortal Kombat is a phenomenon that is here to stay despite being around for close to 30 years now. Joining me to unpack its legacy from the very beginning is Jonathan Leo, Content Director at kakuchopore.com. Uh, it's actually out in 1992, so you're pretty much correct. It was in the time when Street Fighter 2 came out. Midway Games, a arcade game-making company, wanted to make its own versus game hit. So we needed a bit of a hook. So initially, Midway Games wanted to create an action game starring Jean-Claude Van Damme, but that fell through. So, uh, to replace that idea, they decided to create a fantasy martial arts versus game created by Ed Boon, a programmer and designer, as well as John Tobias, another designer, developer and producer kind of guy. Like, they basically are the co-creators of the Mortal Kombat franchise. So here's a funny thing. Johnny Cage, the character in Mortal Kombat, a very famous character, was actually an homage to Jean-Claude Van Damme. So they brought that idea in. So generally, Mortal Kombat blew a lot of heads and made a lot of kids want to play arcade games like Calm Down in America. Because A, it was something really brand new in the sense that they're using realistic digitized sprites and mocap work. That was very unique for 1992. Sure, Midway Games actually created a bunch of games like NARC and Pit Fighter that uses that technology, but this technology came full circle and was the most, at its most refined and most gorgeous in Mortal Kombat. You also got the setting and the characters. I mean, apart from having the Bruce Lee knockoff Liu Kang to lead the hero pack, you had unique characters like Raiden, the Thunder God, the Yellow and Blue Ninjas, Scorpion and Sub-Zero, the four-armed Shokan monster Goro, who was actually a stop-motion creature, also very unique at the time, and the shape-shifting tournament organizer Shang Tsung. Because he was the last boss, he actually got to change to different characters in the roster, so that was very memory-intensive at the time, so you only can pull that stuff off in the arcades. Over time, the lore was fleshed out because of his creators having a story in mind to actually make it a trilogy and so forth. And the game itself, Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat 2 and so forth, actually had a lot of Easter eggs and secrets. See, there was a character you could fight called Reptile, who was a secret character you can only access by going through a lot of hoops in the game itself. So people were actually putting in money to figure out these kind of secrets. As well as, you know, the inputs for the fatalities and the secret moves you can pull off at the end of each match. So yeah. Going back to that, the fatalities itself were very violent at the time. Like, it was a way to differentiate itself from the competitor like Street Fighter 2. So, like, at the end of each round, there'll be, like, a caption that pops up, finish him. So, the winner of that match gets to do whatever he likes to the opponent. Finish him. So of course, to finish off the opponent's style and to humiliate them, they had these fatality moves that anyone can pull off as long as they know the input. And these inputs were kept secret until, you know, the developer actually gave it to the arcade owners or the arcade operators at the time. They shared it off to like their favorite customers and the players, or maybe they wrote it down on a piece of paper. And then when they pull it off, 
that's when you have a lot of people just watching what happens at the end of each match. Like, a fight is one thing, but to see a spectacular move being pulled off that's very violent, that was something that, you know, that made a kid turn its head, his or her head, and be like, wow, that's so cool. You know, that cool factor. Like, this was before YouTube, before streaming. This was a time when we used to actually go outside, put money in a machine to play games, which was probably a novel concept right now. But back then, in the 1992 onward, it was the norm. So Midway Games capitalized on that with Mortal Kombat. And remember when we brought up violence? Yes, all these fatalities range from Raiden actually electrocuting someone to death and becoming skeleton. Fatality. To Sub-Zero actually pulling out a guy's head with the spinal bone intact and everything. So these kind of things were very unique and very eye-catching and very, how do you say, controversial and, you know, shocking at the time to the point where the government, the US government, she had to bring this game up, like stating that vi video games are indeed violent and need to be checked. So because of fatalities and Mortal Kombat, as well as other games in the fold, the ESRB system was born where rating systems were determined for video games. So if a game was actually R-rated like a film, they would actually put like 18MA on the front of the box. Whereas if a game is meant for teens or if the game was meant for children, they'll put either a T or a G in front of it just to state that, yes, this content was actually meant for its, its audience. So because of Mortal Kombat, it was actually like a feature. It was like a linchpin and a lot of... Um, it actually influenced a lot of things uh, in the video game industry for good and ill. Also, even spawned a lot of clones, basically. So as soon as Mortal Kombat came out, a lot of video game companies were like, hey, let's use our own digitized sprites and do our own mocap work to, you know, create our own fighting games. So 1992 onward was a very, very big time for fighting games. Mm. And even as an IP, it is different enough from Street Fighter that it can stand on its own, right? Very, very different. I mean, you've got like the digitized sprites, you've got like the different characters. Like I mentioned, those characters I mentioned, Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Sonya Blade, Kano, and everyone else, they are, sure, they might actually have some facsimile to martial artists, you know, like characters like Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee or Chao Yun-Fat or fantasy superhero characters, but it's grounded in its own martial arts fantasy with its uh, world like Earthrealm and Outworld and even big villains and big bosses like Shao Kahn, Kintaro, and Shang Tsung, like, and Quan Chi. And to the point where even the, the game's mythology and game's universe was so detailed, they actually created spin-off games like Mortal Kombat Mythology Sub-Zero that explored the backstory and the legacy behind Sub-Zero, who was obviously the most one of the more popular characters in the game. So you can actually spin it off to a different genre and a different action game. Or even uh, Mortal Kombat Shaolin Monks that came out in the PS2 era about 2003-04 or so where they focus on the brothers Kung Lao and Liu Kang as they reenact the entire Mortal Kombat Mortal Kombat 2 storyline except in a action 3D beat-em-up gameplay in the style of God of War and Devil May Cry. You've been listening to Jonathan Leo, content director at kakuchupure.com, talking about the early days of the Mortal Kombat franchise. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. This is Gigi Well Played on BFM 89.9.
BFM 89.9 listening to Gigi Well Played I'm your host Hanif Baharudin Yes, this soundtrack should be a clear giveaway to what we're currently talking about. We're talking about the Mortal Kombat franchise. Nope, we're not going to be reviewing the latest reboot movie that's out now. You have to wait and check out Popcorn Culture for that. If I'm not mistaken, the review for that movie will be coming soon. For this show, however, we are going to touch a bit on the original 1995 film, the movie in which this awesome soundtrack was featured. Jonathan Leo, content director from kakuchupore.com, will share more. All Combat became a film, basically. Like, uh, Paul W.S. Anderson was the director. And I think it was New Line Cinema that was producing it at the time. Uh, basically, they took the premise of Mortal Kombat story, martial arts tournament, to determine the fate of the world. They focused it more on Sonya Blade, Liu Kang, oh, and Johnny Cage and Raiden becoming the heroes. And then every other character was, either the, was mostly the antagonist. They kept the roster small. They based it on the first game. They focus more on the core aspect of the game, which was the fighting. Although the movie itself was PG-13, I mean, there was less violence, more like, it became more like a martial arts flick that was more fantasy-driven with monsters to fight, as well as being something that was a stick, because a lot of people thought that video game movies were box office poison. Mortal Kombat 995 was actually the outlier for that because of its quality, because it knew what it wanted to be, basically. It, was, it wasn't even in the so bad as good kind of realm. It was a film made for its time that was just fun to watch and had an energetic cast who just had fun in the role and the film without being completely cheesy. I mean, yes, it was cheesy now when you watch it in the context of 2020 or even 2010. But at the time, it was as 90s as you can get. And it was basically a film that you just wanted to just watch it, eating popcorn. It was just entertaining per se because of the fighting, the cast. And of course, um, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, who was actually playing Shang Tsung, he actually had fun of the role. Lyndon Ashby was also a really fun Johnny Cage, like being the cipher and sort of like the comedic main man who didn't know what was going on until it was too late. So yeah, a lot of charisma was brimming for the film. Mm. I think uh, the films uh, that were released in the 90s did help the franchise's exposure, right? Yeah, yeah, it did, it did. In 995, Mortal Kombat actually grossed 122 million US worldwide because of what I mentioned, the quality of it and the fact that it took it, took it half seriously. That was the fun part. Now, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, its follow-up, that was the one that was a stinker because it was like a, the turnaround time was about one year or so. They couldn't get the cast to come back again because most of them wanted double the pay. So, of course, Mortal Kombat Annihilation was made with less budget than the first Mortal Kombat. And because of its quality, as it showed, and everything, because from its stunt work, its effects, and the fact that the plot of Mortal Kombat Annihilation was just a means to lead it to different fights here and there without much context. That was why it bombed. The quality and the fact that it looked like a direct-to-TV movie. It did actually get like US 51 million worldwide over a budget of US 30 million. But it obviously paled in comparison because the first Mortal Kombat grossed, I think, more than double of that. So that was pretty much it. I mean, I think they even the only the only actor that came back to the project was Robin Show as Liu Kang and Talita Soho. Talisa Soto as Kitana. Everyone else knew that this sequel was a stinker because of its turnaround time and its scripts. So 
they basically, unless they get paid double, they wouldn't come back. And true enough, they didn't. Mm, right. And then uh, the franchise sort of like, I guess, transitioned to console and eventually from a 2D game, they switched to 3D. Um, how did the franchise progress then? It actually progressed pretty all right. Uh, Mortal Kombat 4 was actually a pretty decent game that was really... Because Midway Games actually launched War Gods beforehand as a test to see what they can do in Mortal Kombat in the future game in the 3D engine. And yeah, of course, it worked in the end. With a, It still stuck to its roots to what made a Mortal Kombat game good in the first place. I believe Mortal Kombat 4 did not sell well because it came out the same time as Mortal Kombat Annihilation. And because movies itself are more like of a way to actually get your video game name across, it didn't do that well. And thus, because of association, a lot of people avoided Mortal Kombat 4 and that stigma stuck on with the franchise, I think until about a decade or so later. Uh, we should also bring up the fact that a lot of the Mortal Kombat franchise from 1992 onward also had like a TV series and an animated film to lead up to Mortal Kombat 2 and Mortal Kombat 3 onward. It was like a way for the company uh, Midway Games as well as their TV movie production partner Lightstorm Entertainment um, led by one filmmaker Larry Kasanoff who had ties with James Cameron to spread the game brand and the game story beyond just the video games. So this that was a term for this. It was called transmedia, where basically you take one one IP and you spread it all across like comics, video games, TV shows, movies, and different medias, so that you can attract every every target market to actually follow the storyline and which will eventually lead to the game itself. I think I believe Mortal Kombat was actually the pioneer for this because uh, I even before the Matrix trilogy had like video games and. 3D movies that tied into the main feature, which was the Matrix Enter the Revolution and the sequel itself. And Mortal Kombat actually pulled that out first, in that sense. Mm. And uh, like earlier you mentioned, uh, there are also uh, the action-adventure spin-offs, right, of the game. Uh, what was the reception like among fans? Uh, I think some of the games received decent reviews, but overall, um, was it a step in the right direction? Considering that, I guess, at that time, they were trying to experiment with not only... Um, expanding the kind of games that can be produced out of the franchise, but also uh, in terms of expanding its lore, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. It actually did a great job at the latter, the expanding the lore bit, because, again, people wanted to find out more about Sub-Zero. So Mortal Kombat Mythology Sub-Zero actually did pretty well back in the day. I think it was like the PS1 era in the mid-90s with the digitized graphics and the 2D platforming. The game did not age well over time and it was really tough for a platformer. But at the same time, it didn't matter because it was the story and everything and the fact that everyone had a really big interest in Mortal Kombat was really, really excited to see what was unfolding in that storyline. This was also true for Mortal Kombat Shaolin Monks because it also focused on the different take on the Mortal Kombat story. But through the eyes of Liu Kang and Kung Lao, as well as, you know, depicting different fights and exploration, Metroidvania, backtracking bits in the Mortal Kombat universe. Like, it's not just Shao Kahn's island, but also the outworld, the outworld, the place where Shao Kahn lived and his kingdom and everything. So it was a good exploration of the different backdrops and whatnot that was established since Mortal Kombat 1 and Mortal Kombat 2. And the fact that it was a pretty good action game also helped a lot. 
Now, I mean, it was also an experiment that also failed because there was a Mortal Kombat game called Mortal Kombat Special Forces involving uh, Jax. It was basically a storyline on Jax. And it was just a very basic PS1 bargain bin action game. And there wasn't actually much merit to it. So that was that. It was just there. It existed. It looked like very primitive, especially in a time when PlayStation 1 was near its life, life cycle. And that was it. It was like a it was like a little blip in history that no one cared about. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then uh, we move on to the early two thousand and the non-numbered sequels of the game. Right. I remember playing some of them, uh, but apparently, I mean, looking back at it retrospectively, they weren't as well uh, received. Right. Well, actually, looking back, it was actually. Okay, because you got to remember, in 1992 up till 2000, that was like the peak and the boom of finding games. And then because of the oversaturation, as well as people moving on to shooters at the time, from 2001 onward, because of how good they looked with Call of Duty and Unreal and Quake, a lot of people just petered out and just moved on from fighting games. So I guess Bitway Games wanted to capitalize on the Mortal Kombat brand again. But because of little to no interest in finding games from 2001 up until 2008, then there were less people playing these kind of games more and more. I mean, the only companies that were still making finding games and that was more of like an annual and a more of like biannual basis was still SNK and Capcom. So Midway Games wanted to just, you know, because they liked the brand a lot and they knew that it was sold a lot of copies, they went back with Deadly Alliance, Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance, which came out on the PS2 and Xbox and GameCube around 2002. It was basically a 3D reinvention of that. Basically, they took bits from Tekken, they took bits from Street Fighter, but it became its own thing. And it continued the storyline from Mortal Kombat 4, where... Shang Tsung and Quan Chi teamed up to kill off Liu Kang and had a bunch of new heroes as well as Sub-Zero and Scorpion coming back again to fight off this new deadly alliance. And then it continued on storyline with Mortal Kombat Deception involving new characters like Unaga the Dragon King and Sujinko the, the guy who released him in the first place as well as uh, Mortal Kombat Armageddon. They came out like in a span of like two years onward between 2002 till 2007 or so like this was the ps2 xbox the original xbox era so these games they were they had a different mechanics like weapon switching completely full 3d battles as well as a crypt mode where basically you are in this maze and you get to unlock different puzzles different modes and different concept art and whatnot while you're in a quest to find crypt coins to unlock things here and there and it also even had single-player modes where you get to control one character in an RPG-like setting, but combat was obviously done in Mortal Kombat 3D fashion. And it also even included different mini-games in the game itself, like a spin-off of Super Puzzle Fighter called Puzzle Combat, a chess, a chess knockoff called Chess Combat, as well as a Mario Kart um, knockoff clone called Mortal Kombat. So it was pretty fun in that sense. I won't say it's like as well-received as Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, but it was really fun that it actually sold enough copies to warrant different sequels here and there. And that actually also landed a gig from uh, Midway Games to actually land a gig with Warner Brothers to create Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe, which unfortunately was... I mean, it was good. It was well-received, but it wasn't as good as the previous Mortal Kombat mainline titles. 
It was, it was an interesting experiment because I remember it as well, Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe. Uh, but it it is also I think one of the last games uh, published by Midway, right before they went bankrupt. Uh, yeah, that's correct. Because of many, many, many terrible decisions Midway Games have made with publishing games and creating games. Yeah, they went bankrupt. I think this is like a story we can talk in a future episode. But I'm just summing it up right there because of the many, many bad decisions of the games and whatnot. But at the same time, this also made Ed Boon and a couple of his uh, long-term, long-time developers and programmers to basically team up with Warner Brothers to create their own studio called NetherRealm Studios. And this led to the generation of ideas and whatnot that led off. And because of Street Fighter 4 coming back in 2008 and creating that new fighting game boom, as well as esports and whatever that followed, as well as the arcade scene for a time, that was when NetherRealm Studios and Warner Brothers created the next Mortal Kombat. I mean, it was called Mortal Kombat 9, but for marketing purposes, they took away the numbers. So yeah, Mortal Kombat 9 came out in 2011 for the Xbox 360 and the PS3, which was, you know, the HD era. It still retained the 2D fighting game concept like with Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, but the graphics were in 3D. It had new fighting game mechanics. Sorry, not sand switching. It used X-ray moves and supers, but it kept everything basic but also kind of complex at the same time. It had better aesthetics and a pretty packed single-player campaign where basically it was a retcon slash remake of Mortal Kombat 1, 2, and 3 story altogether where basically you control whoever was the main character in that single-player campaign from Raiden to Donny Cage to Sub-Zero to Sonya Blade and they just went on the storyline. They took this idea from Mortal Kombat versus DC Universe but made it its own thing and that was what was pretty cool about it. And under NetherRealm Studios, the franchise was galvanized and came back stronger, right? Uh, the games were very well received, right? Oh yes, very. I think uh, they sold a lot of copies and it was a really... It was even... I think not just Mortal Kombat 9, but its following sequels, Mortal Kombat 10 and Mortal Kombat 11, were also included in major fighting game tournaments like EVO, Evolution Championship Tournament. So because the way the game is tailored, there was actually balancing that was required from the developer's part to make sure that each character played as fair as they could without breaking the entire game, like adding in bosses and whatnot. Um, Mortal Kombat 10 and Mortal Kombat 11, as well as the Injustice games, from NetherRealm Studios also had a pretty interesting development cycle because like between the like there will there's usually a gap between Mortal Kombat 9 and, and the next Mortal Kombat, like about three, four year gap. So in between they develop the Injustice game, which was basically DC superheroes fighting each other in an alternate universe. So there'll be like an alternating kind of like cycle, like a couple of years they create one Mortal Kombat game, another couple of years Injustice sequel and then Mortal Kombat, and then Injustice, and so forth and so forth. So with Mortal Kombat 11 already out, it's only a matter of time until Warner Brothers and NetherRealms actually create and announce their own new next Injustice title. Oh, and also the violence. I also got to mention the bloodied elephant in the room. Yes, Mortal Kombat 9 onward, they basically upped the violence. They added in like really interesting mechanics where you can actually create a fatality midway or like mid-match called Brutalities as well as even like uh, they brought back babalities and friendships from past Mortal Kombat titles where you can humiliate your opponent further by being friends with them or turning them into a baby, which was pretty interesting, you know? Like, you know, like just different little secrets and whatnot being crammed in, you know? As well as, you know, paying homage to their previous history of Mortal Kombat, not just from the comedic side, but also on the serious and the 
storyline side of things. Mm, okay, so John, you're a huge uh, fighting game fan, right? Uh, so where does Mortal Kombat rank among the myriad of fighting games out there, from your Street Fighter to your King of Fighters to yeah Tekken series? Well, quality wise, is uh, fighting game wise, I believe Street Fighter and King of Fighters are still on top. But in terms of pop culture relevance and storyline development and its lore and its more iconic characters, people remember Mortal Kombat characters just as much as Street Fighter characters. If I were to show you a picture of any of the ninjas, any uh, Goro, even Shang Tsung or Shao Kahn, you'll probably recognize these characters just as well as Ryu or Ken or Chun-Li because of the way they're designed and how simple yet fascinating they're unique, how unique they are in terms of aesthetics as well as the color scheme and whatnot. Of course, while Street Fighter itself is more technical and more popular to fans and players in Asia, Mortal Kombat is more revered in US and in the Philippines because of its Western, unique martial arts fantasy appeal. I'd say like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter are actually on top in the pop culture status relevance compared to other fighting games like Tekken, KOF, and Samurai Showdown. And um, the I guess the identity that Mortal Kombat sort of like has uh, among fans uh, is still pretty much, I guess, relevant to this day. Right? I think when it comes to fighting games, uh, Mortal Kombat is distinctive enough uh, in its identity that it's able to separate itself from other fighting games, right? The story, the goriness, the fatalities, and these are the things that I guess make it stand out compared to other fighting games out there, right? Yeah, you pretty much hit the nail on the head there. It's pretty much all these things, all the story, the gore, the fatalities, even the secrets that make Mortal Kombat the most memorable package and the most memorable franchise in video game history. The story is pretty epic and lengthy, as I mentioned before. Like with all the spin-off games that touch upon it, as well as the main games itself also having different endings and, you know, having an outline story for it, as well as the films. Iconic characters like Goro, Sub-Zero, Scorpion, Johnny Cage, Shao Kahn, and so forth, as well as the way they actually include guest characters. Like in Mortal Kombat 10, I believe they added in a bunch of horror movie iconic characters like Jason Voorhees, Leatherface, uh, the Xenomorph, and the Predator. And Mortal Kombat 11 also included John Rambo, the Terminator, Robocop, and Spawn. You know, because they're all R-rated characters and they would fit well in the Mortal Kombat universe. The fatalities and finishes, as well as like little, little secrets here and there, also help, you know, because of the secrets. I believe Mortal Kombat was actually one of those early video games where it's just jam-packed with so many secrets that created buzz among the community and people who actually frequent the arcades as well as, you know, casual passerbys and whatnot, where you've got, like, codes and whatnot, like how to access Reptile as a fighting game character in the first game, as well as secret characters like Jade and Smoke in Mortal Kombat 2, as well as background characters who became characters in the mainline storylines like Blaze in the first Mortal Kombat who became a boss in Mortal Kombat Armageddon. And you've also got like references like the Ermac Code um, in Mortal Kombat 2, who basically the developers thought it would be funny to actually create a character named Ermac in Ultimate Mortal Kombat 3. So that was where the joke came from. As well as like little things here and there, like if you uppercut someone in any of the Mortal Kombat games to have the sound designer Dan Forden popping out and saying Toasty in the bottom right corner of the game screen. So yeah, that was also a thing. So all these little funny things as well just make Mortal Kombat, all these little touches here and there, as well as of course the violent fatalities that actually evolve over time from being very gory to being very ridiculous like in Mortal Kombat 3, also becoming a mainstay. 
in the series and the franchise. So John, I have to ask, uh, do you have any favorite fatalities from the games? Okay, like I think my favorite ones are from like the earlier ones, like Sub-Zero's Mortal Kombat 1 ESRB Maker, as well as uh, Quan Chi's Mortal Kombat 4 fatality where he takes off a guy's leg and just starts beating up, beating his enemies with it, which also made a comeback in Mortal Kombat 9. Um, Noot Cybot's fatality in Mortal Kombat 9 where he basically, quote-unquote, make a wish, like you know how you do with a chicken bone, except replace a chicken bone with a human being. And uh, yeah, Melina's Mortal Kombat 10 fatality where she basically starts eating you from the midsection. It's Actually, I noticed that it actually becomes more of a snuff film in Mortal Kombat 10 and 11 where they make it hyper-violent, but because of the video game aesthetics, like they change the aesthetics to a bit more serious in Mortal Kombat 10, it becomes a bit unnerving to say the least, the way they pull off the fatalities and whatnot. So to each your own, I guess. So I guess it has this way of being like very eye-catching and being very controversial even up till now. You're right. I think if I remember correctly, yeah, there was a certain absurdity to, I think, the earlier fatalities as well that borders on being slightly funny and humorous. Uh, whereas now, yeah, it's a bit more gruesome, right? It's a bit more straight up. I, I mean, I think they still try to retain that that funniness, that absurdity, but it tends to be a lot more gruesome these days. Oh yeah, it became a bit more edgy because of how serious Mortal Kombat 10 and Mortal Kombat 11 can get in terms of its theme and whatnot. Mortal Kombat 9 was considered like a reboot, like how... Star Wars 7 was, the, the the new trilogy was, except Mortal Kombat 9, of course, still, I mean, okay, it also included bibalities, so of course it has its absurdity included in. So I guess this com- combination of levity and seriousness does help elevate the series to cult status up to this day. Mm. Um, last words, John, uh, 30 years on, um, will the game still retain its, I guess, relevance considering that, considering that I think NetherRealm is doing pretty well with the, with the franchise and also the fact that, yeah, we had a movie just released recently, right? So yeah, do you think that the Mortal Kombat franchise will continue? I'll just say this, even if NetherRealms, through some bad luck, created a terrible Mortal Kombat game, Mortal Kombat as a name, as a franchise, as a brand, will still live on because of the 30 years of history it has endured since 1992. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier on, it was the few games that had multiple ports beyond three SKUs back then. It created the ESRB, the rating system, because of the first game. It also made Transmedia successful. Like, before the Wachowski brothers did Transmedia, Mortal Kombat did it first with the movies and the TV shows and the... animated films that came out in between 992 up till now. And yeah, because of the video game and its legacy and its pop culture status as well as as its iconic characters, Mortal Kombat isn't going to die out anytime soon. I'm very sure the 2021 Mortal Kombat movie, like, I think it's going to get like mixed reception. I mean, I know others in my circle who liked it. I'm not really a fan of it. I thought it was just okay compared to the last year's animated film, Scorpion's Revenge. I mean, it was okay, but generally it's going to entice and wow people through many years and it's going to be memorable for years to come. 
You've been tuning in to GG Well Played and we've been talking about the Mortal Kombat franchise in light of the latest movie that was released recently. Thank you Jonathan Leo, content director from kakuchupuri.com for joining me on the show. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, you can find the podcast on bfm.my, our app available on the Apple App Store or Google Play and also Spotify. Do share your thoughts about the show or the games that you play via our email ggwp at bfm.my. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Hanif Baharudin. Thanks for joining us. Game on. Till next time, GG Well Played. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.